If you don't know me, uh, I'm Pastor Rick Scovel, and I've been privileged to head up the worship ministry and technology um, here at Crossroad for just over three years now. Um, this morning, I get a chance to wrap up our series that we've been in, and if you've been uh, with us through this Armor of God series, you know that we've talked about truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation, the Word of God. There's a spiritual battle that every Christian, by definition, is supposed to fight. And today, in this final installment of our series, we're going to consider the subject of prayer. One of my favorite authors, Bible scholar D.A. Carson, has said what is both surprising and depressing is the sheer prayerlessness that characterizes so much of the Western church. Pastor Rusty used to say that if one wants to kill a service, just make it a prayer service. Attendance will plummet, Boom, mission accomplished. You know, my concern is the same with a message on prayer. I mean, does coming up here and announcing a message on prayer mean that I just fired off sleeping gas and any moment listenership will plummet and you'll switch off mentally? Well, I have a second concern today. Our sermon text, which are verses 18, 19, and 20 of Ephesians 6, contain no actual prayer. I mean, if our text was, say, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 or the Prayer of Yahweh's in 1 Chronicles 4, I have a hunch that these specific prayers could probably be listener adhesive and a decent percentage of you would mentally stick around. You'd be interested in what the particulars are in these prayers, but our next set of verses in Ephesians are simply a call to prayer, and there's no model or specific prayer there. And so, brothers and sisters, can you appreciate the double whammy that I am in this morning? First, my subject matter tends to be a sleeper prayer, and second, our text doesn't contain a prayer. All right, so call this double jeopardy, call this double predestination, whatever, it is a preacher's nightmare. That is the situation. But nevertheless, my God is faithful. As Bi the Bible says, he will not suffer me to be tried above what I'm able to bear, but he will make a way of escape that I may be able to bear it. And uh, I first thought that the way of escape that he had provided was the closing song, and that we could do that right now and just be out of here, okay? But I'm a family man. I have, I have a wife, I have a son, we like to eat, and I quickly realized that this way of escape was really just the devil of unemployment. <laughs> and it wasn't divine help. Now, where God's help did come was in the thought, talking about prayer might be more inviting when actual prayers have been put before us. And so we're gonna start the journey a little different this morning, differently, that's better English. We are going to put several prayers out on the table like an appetizer before our sermon text. Are you ready? Okay, so here's our first. This is an actual prayer. It's not made up. It's not fiction. Actual prayer said by an actual person. Listen to this prayer. Our Holy Father, we confess the weakness and sinfulness of our lives. We have often turned away from you to seek our own desires. And often when we have done no evil, we have undertaken nothing of good and so have been guilty of uselessness and neglect. From this sin of idleness and indifference, set us free. Lead us into fruitful effort and deliver us from profitless lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is a prayer by Martin Luther King, Jr. 
The Baptist minister and great civil rights leader, it's a handwritten prayer. You can actually see a copy of it. What a profound and convicting prayer. The next prayer we're going to look at comes from the Bible. We have a slide of the entire prayer. Let's look at it now. It's the entire prayer. Oh, God, please heal her. Okay, this is what Moses prays in regard to Miriam, his sister, and her skin condition. Five words in the Hebrew, as in English. Next, in our somewhat random sampling of actual prayers, is this one. Lord, you'll have to make me willing to be made willing to learn what you want me to learn in this huge place. I just can't imagine being happy here. This is a prayer of Vonette Bright, one of the two co-founders of Crew, also known as Campus Crusade for Christ. Crew began on the college campus of the University of California, Los Angeles. And the background of this prayer is that the ministry needed space for students to gather for the evangelistic events and so forth. And her and her husband, Bill, had sold their businesses, very successful ones, by the way, in order to focus fully on college ministry. And one day as Bill was driving through Los Angeles, he saw a large house for sale. And in his spirit, he sensed that this was God's provision. And so he and Vonette looked into it, and they ended up buying this house. It was a 20-bedroom Spanish-style house. And I've got a picture of it. Well, managing that house and her personal family schedule and the ministry schedules became a burden to Vonette. And they also had two young kids at the time, and she came to feel that they should get rid of this house. Let's get out of this. It's too much work. But she recognized that her attitude had gone bad. And so telling the story, she vividly remembers kneeling down in the bay window of this house and praying, Lord, you'll have to make me willing to be made willing if we're to stay. I just can't imagine being happy here. And sometime after that prayer, a self-dialogue took place within her. And she thought, Vonette, what's my purpose in living? Answer, to bring honor and glory to God. How am I going to bring honor and glory to God where, where, where I'm at? And she began to view differently what God had given her. And in her words, I quote, the Lord began to show me how I could get organized and I would set aside certain times to do certain jobs. And even in the times of drudgery, she came to view herself as doing things for Jesus, not all these people and events and so forth. And Vonette ended up finding great happiness in that house. And she tells people, I learned a real lesson from the Holy Spirit. Our fourth prayer in this little survey goes like this. Holy Father, I am not praying that you take those you have given me out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Who said that? Yes, John 17, thank you. It's a little portion of a much longer prayer by Jesus of Nazareth, and we have a slide that we can bring up in connection with that as well. What you're seeing here is the oldest New Testament manuscript in existence. Uh, the oldest uh, one happens to be the Gospel of John. And without the Gospel of John, we would not know about this prayer of Jesus. So notice their spiritual warfare in this prayer, right? Long before Paul, long before the book of Ephesians, Jesus is bringing up the evil one, the devil, and he's praying for protection of his followers. 
This brings us to our next hors d'oeuvre on our appetizer plate of real prayers. This is our final one, so here we go. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon you, and we beg your blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. When we talk about the U.S. Supreme Court banning voluntary school prayer in 1962, this is the prayer of that historic case, Engel, the Engel case. It's a non-sectarian prayer. The New York Regents had approved it over a decade before 1962 to be used in classrooms as part of the morning routine. And it was created by a committee. I mean, as I tell you the story, it will sound like a setup for a joke. There was a Catholic priest, a Jewish rabbi, and a Protestant minister sat down at the table. Okay, that's literally what happened. This is not a joke. That's how this prayer came about. And when the six-to-one decision was handed down by the high court, it produced anger, frustration. Eighty percent of Americans opposed the decision. Two former presidents, Eisenhower and Hoover, opposed the decision. Okay, so we've just looked at a sampling of actual prayers and actual life. Different types of prayers, some short, some long, yet all of them good and theologically solid, I would say. And so with that sampling concluded, let's take a look at our text for today, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. The notes of one study Bible really hits it on the head when it discerns that this section explains when, how, and for whom to pray. I never realized there was so much in this little section of verses. And when I saw that, I'm like, wow, that, that's, that's like a treatise on prayer right there. And I, I want to I read the passage not from a standard modern version. I want to do, again, something a little different. I've chosen to use a different version right now, and then later on, I'm going to use the New International Version. But for our initial look, I want to use a published translation from the Greek by Andrew T. Lincoln, who in his massive commentary on Ephesians provides a translation of the biblical Greek. And my reason for doing this is that Lincoln's is one of the most literal translations available anywhere, and I want us to see and grapple with it a bit in this highly literal form. So we'll put it on the screen. Please follow along as I read Lincoln's translation. Through every prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit, and to this end keeping alert in all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and for me that when I open my mouth the word may be given to me, to make known boldly and openly the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may talk of it boldly and openly as I ought to speak. The precision, the accuracy of this translation is superb. Lincoln is a master at his craft. But did you notice as I read that that something didn't feel right? Kind of like hearing someone say, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti. And if you're like most people, your mind really wants to hear that eighth pitch, Do, right? To give it a sense of completeness. And a similar thing is going on in this text in the Greek. This is a long string of words as we encounter these verses, but there's no main verb in these three verses. There's no what grammarians call a finite verb. And so when we encounter verses 18 and 20, and we just kind of snip them and look at them separately like we're doing today, we got to realize we're stepping into a stream that's already in motion. 
we're downstream from a main verb that's further up in the text. And I want to draw that out and make that clear. And Pastor Lyle did us a great service in his message on the footwear and the armor when he pointed out that four times in the space of four verses, the apostle talks about standing firm. Now, the most climactic of these, the fourth one, is what begins verse 14. Stand, therefore. It's in the imperative. You believers in Ephesus, stand, therefore. And guess what? If we trace back from today's passage in search of locating the, the, the closest main verb to it, it's this verb in verse 14. See, the last full stop in Greek is at the end of verse 13, and then a fresh sentence starts with this command. Stand, therefore. And it's in the plural. All of you, stand. And then after that, there's this cascade of phrases, one after the other, that introduce each piece of the armor of God. And there's no period, it keeps going, then we have today's text. Now, I know what I just said could be a little confusing, so I have a slide here that hopefully will, will help you out. Here's the structure. Stand, therefore, having armor piece one in place, armor piece two, three, four, goes through the list of armor, praying, and it goes on. So what I want us to see here is that it's kind of a complex structure, and there's actually not an imperative. It's not a command saying, pray implied, but the, the real imperative is to stand. Some interpreters like Rick Renner say that prayer is an implied but not made explicit piece of the armor, and he suggests the Roman lance, a long weapon, much longer than a sword that's used for thrusting. It's used uh, by a mounted warrior. I mean, you might think of jousting, right? Those huge pieces of, of metal, other interpreters, like Andrew Lincoln, say prayer is not to be stood, understood as another piece of armor, but is an action for spiritual soldiers to do. And he says simply, standing ready for combat is to be combined with prayer. And so verses 18 through 20 thus show us what it is that we're to do in addition to suiting up with the armor. And I'm more of this persuasion. But no matter how you view it, all interpreters are in full agreement that in this passage, prayer is a major, if not the major element in how believers are to do warfare and to have victories. But let's be honest. How often do we view prayer as optional as even negligible one person knew exactly how to quash this view she wrote don't forget to pray today God didn't forget to wake you up and continue your life this morning I want to now turn to the new international version and go through this passage and Get some takeaways that we can take away in this message this morning and use in our lives. Verse 18, here's how the NIV deals with that issue. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. What is prayer? Prayer is communication. It's communicating with God. It's not an incantation. It's not a series of magical words. 
It is not a selfish, name-it-and-claim-it demanding. Eileen Schuler, who's examined prayer in the Bible, has said, I, I love her candor, she says, often it's difficult to draw a line between a conversation with God and the more formalized style of address and content that we call prayers. Someone else has pointed out that, an, that a commonly neglected aspect of prayer is listening. Okay, not that we have to expect to hear every time we pray, pray something from the Lord, but we should always be open to receiving insight and guidance and even a shift in our personal mood when we pray. And so our first big takeaway point this morning is this. If God is not hearing regularly from you, from me, from us, we're not using his battle plan. Soldiers have more than just armor. They have habits. They have a plan. God never intended to give us all this great armor and then say, this gear will give you success. Go for it. Don't bother me. These items are sufficient. No, that's not it at all. Ephesians 6.10 doesn't say, be strengthened by the armor and that's all the strength you need. 6.10 says, be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. And scripture teaches that God is a relational God. He wants to hear from you and me. He wants to move as a result of our coming humbly to him and praying. There are good things of the kingdom that do not take place except by prayer. I don't think we say this enough in our churches. But this is biblical teaching. There's some things that don't happen except by prayer. You know, Jesus had his group of disciples and he commissioned them with his exousia his authority and he said now go out and do what I've you've seen me doing in all these towns go heal and go cast out demons and there's an episode in Mark chapter 9 a boy is possessed by a spirit of muteness and the disciples are not able to be effective and so the father brings the boy directly to Jesus, and Jesus handles it. And then afterwards, what the text says is, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples then pulled him aside and asked privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And what was his answer? This kind can come out only by prayer. Let's get personal now. Do you pray? When you pray, are your prayers shallow? Are they like, dear Lord, please don't let my husband be home when all my online orders arrive? <laughs> okay, single guys out there, are you praying that God will help you to impress the hottie that shows up at all the games? Okay, friends, we've got to get biblical in our prayers. In 2015, a Christian movie came out war room it's part corn I'll admit okay but I appreciate that prayer became a subject front and center in a movie and, and, and war room does all in all a pretty good job of reflecting the theology of Ephesians 6 and I like this, the scene where there's a real estate agent Elizabeth and she has a combative marriage and she begins to open up, I mean, actually she opens up quite a bit about it to this elderly Christian widow, Clara. And Elizabeth explains, but she kind of does more ranting than explaining. And finally, Miss Clara pipes up and she says, really wisely, you're fighting the wrong enemy. 
Yes, your husband certainly has his issues, but he's not your enemy. Clara says, you got to plead with God so that he can do what only he can do. Love that scene. Ephesians 6.18 says to pray in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know it does not mean the human spirit. This is referring to God's Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And when a person becomes a Christian receives Christ as Savior, Scripture teaches that a helper is given to reside inside the believer. That's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And we know that the Holy Spirit is a source of spiritual power. We also know from the New Testament that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And so praying in the Spirit is prayer in which he is not grieved, but that we've confessed anything that's tainting our relationship with God and that we're in a place to receive guidance and direction from the Holy Spirit. May we be people who pray in the Holy Spirit that's taken residence in us if we've accepted the Lord. The acronym ADD stands for Attention Deficit Disorder. Okay? ADD is considered a debilitating and chronic disorder. Uh, ADD affects a person's functioning in life. It challenges their ability to get things done at work, at school, at home, and so forth. And one insightful person has said, there seems to be such a thing as prayer ADD. All right, you start praying, you wander off, you come back, and then it's like, oh God, I'm sorry. Where was I? What was I saying? Can you relate to that? I certainly can. And if I can get real practical here for a moment, I want to share that at various times in my life, I have found something to be very helpful. Going on a walk when I pray. That has helped me many times with my place on the prayer ADD spectrum. I don't know what it is, but it's the movement, the fresh air, I'm looking at the landscape, and I seem to kind of be freed from that place where I can go down into slumber if I'm just, you know, sitting in a, a little closet, a little war room. And so I just want to commend that. If you struggle in prayer and you've never tried walking or jogging while you pray, just a little tidbit, you might want to try that. Now, some of you are so averse to jogging, you'll hate me for, you know, but um, for those of you that that's not an aversion, give it a try. I'm privileged to be part of a regional Kansas group of pastors who have monthly get-togethers to support and sharpen one another. We also read Christian books, and the one we happen to be in right now is one that I did not vote for, okay? But it's turned out to be quite timely, not only for this message, but it's just helpful in my personal life. It, it's a book that's very authentic and practical, and I'd like to, to quote from it here extensively for the next few minutes. It's entitled A Praying Life by Paul E. Miller, and it's published by Nav Press. Now, listen to how Miller captures a very typical dynamic of the believer when it comes to prayer. And especially hear his practical recommendations, because our purpose this morning is not simply to put all this stuff on the table about prayer, but that it might change us and affect our daily, weekly habits. 
He writes, when we pray, almost immediately our minds wander off in a dozen different directions. The problems of the day push out our well-intentioned resolve to be spiritual. We give ourselves a spiritual kick in the pants and try again, but life crowds out prayer. We know that prayer is not supposed to be like this, so we give up in despair. We might as well get something done. What's the problem? We're trying to be spiritual, to get it right. We, like adults, try to fix ourselves up. In contrast, Jesus wants us to become, wants us to come to him like little children, just as we are. And he quotes Matthew 18, 3. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. But the difficulty of coming to Jesus just as we are, Miller says, is that we are messy. And life is messy, and prayer can make it worse. Because when we slow down to pray, we are immediately confronted with how unspiritual we are. We are confronted with how difficult it is to concentrate on our creator. And he says, nothing exposes our spiritual powerlessness like prayer. And so he gives this counsel. He says, don't try to get the prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. They come as they are, running noses and all. We'll sing the old gospel hymn just as I am, but when it comes to praying, we don't come just as we are. We try, like adults, to fix ourselves up. Private, personal prayer is one of the last great bastions of legalism. In order to pray like a child, you might need to unlearn the non-personal, non-real praying that you've been taught. Wow. And speaking of unreal prayer, when Ephesians was written back in the early mid-60s of the first century, the dominant culture of the whole vast region was Greco-Roman. The Greeks and the Romans, they didn't believe in one God. They believed in a pantheon, a whole slew of gods. And stick with me for a moment. These gods had human-like characteristics. They were flawed and fickle like we are. And when, when you were going to pray to a god or goddess, the, the choice of which one you went to depended on the nature of the specific request that you had. You know, there were so many deities that in some cases the gender of a deity was not clear. And this gave rise to, get this, the widespread use of the following phrase when praying to certain deities. The phrase is, whether you be god or goddess. Think of that. You get your incense, you bake some bread, you go to the shrine to pray, and you pray, whether you are god or goddess, please help my insomnia. And the gifts were a key aspect of this whole thing. I mean, food, you could bring drink, you could write poems, bring botanicals, candles, vases, votives, figurines, on and on the gifts that were given to the deities so that they would feel inclined to grant the requests. And they were also used to appease anger. Appeasement, the definition of appeasement is giving what they want in order to prevent them from harming you or being angry with you. 
That's what prayer meant in Greco-Roman culture at the time Ephesians was written. And into that culture comes the gospel and comes the apostle. And look at what prayer is like in Paul's letters. One is praying to the only living God. He's the loving God who doesn't crave our trinkets and our gifts, but he gave us the most precious gift, his son, and he justifies us, he reckons us righteous in his sight, and when the Christian prays, it's not to curry favor with God, it's not to appease God so that he won't harm us, rather we pray because of a loving relationship. So different from Greco-Roman culture, and the only other prayer, in, the only actual prayer in Ephesians is in chapter one, and part of that, Paul says this, I pray, Ephesians, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to those of us who believe. Augustine said, true whole prayer is nothing but love. That is the New Testament perspective. Now let's go back to verse 18. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. Behind this word alert is the verb agrupneo. And in earlier Greek, agrupneo meant to lie awake, to be wakeful. And this is a, a literal keeping yourself awake. Okay, and, and, and it may have even been a military term, in fact, which fits this context in Ephesians 6, great. But by the time of the New Testament, this verb acquired a metaphorical usage, the one that we see here, and it means to be alertly concerned about, to be on the lookout out of heart concern. And I have to admit, I've not looked at prayer that way with that type of intensity, Studying this passage this past couple weeks, this part of the text has really grabbed me because I, I picture a member of the military being on alert. There's a threat, there's a battle, and that military professional is on the alert. And then I picture me, and it's more like, ah, civilian in peacetime, you know? Just so lax, prayer is optional. Yeah, I kind of know about this person and the struggle they're going through and the doubts. But if we adopted this viewpoint in this verse, we would be like a soldier that's like, man, I see a threat. I am on it. I'm going to pray. And the phrase here in the Greek also says to be on the lookout with all persistence. I mean, this is really emphatic in the text. To be on the lookout with concern, with all persistence. And it, as I just meditated on this part of the word of God, it made me think of our little dog, Teddy, okay? Now, Teddy, we have this uh, sliding glass window in the front of our house that looks out past a big yard and a, a chain link fence, and then there's West Street there, and he sits there often, and he, he looks, and if any person even remotely close to our property enters the field of vision, Teddy barks loudly and repeatedly, He's telling the family, I've spotted a potential threat to our property. <laughs> and that's what this Greek text basically is telling us to be like as believers praying for other believers. And so our next big point that we can put on the screen is this. Doggedly be on the lookout in order to pray 
for fellow soldiers, fellow believers. That takes us to verse 19. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Even the Apostle Paul, who heard the risen Christ on that road to Damascus, through whom God worked miracles, he planted scores of churches, that same Paul asks for prayer. No Christian is beyond the need for prayer. And oftentimes, people don't know what we're going through at particular seasons of our lives unless we share. And that leads me to our point number three. It's okay to ask for prayer for yourself. This, too, is biblical. And I don't think we do that enough in our churches. Ask a trusted friend. Ask a pastor. Ask a deacon. Life is too short to not ask for prayer when you need it and you're under fire. Now this verse talks about the mystery of the gospel. And with that, we encounter one of Paul's most favorite vocabulary words, it seems. Mystery, mysterion. 21 times in the New Testament, he talks about the mysterion. And I, so I just want to touch on this briefly. The phrase, the mystery of the gospel, does not mean that the gospel is so complicated and veiled that it's like a, a case that detectives try and try to figure out. Rather, the mystery is revealed. It's a former mystery. What does is, what is Paul write at the very tail end of the book of Romans, the last two verses? He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance faith among all the Gentiles, to him be glory. And as Paul asks for the Christians in Ephesus to pray that he make known the mystery of the gospel, verse 20 adds, for which I am an ambassador or representative in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. You know, the only actual physical piece of military gear or equipment in all of Ephesians 6 is this chain in verse 20. I mean, throughout our study, these many weeks, we've encountered many metalworks, things like helmets, breastplates, spikes on footwear, swords, and so forth. But all of those have been in the mind's eye, okay? They're allegorical, they're illustrations, but if you want to encounter a genuine piece of iron in the text, it's in verse 20, it's right here. You want God's word to report about an actual piece of military equipment being used right there on location as Paul is writing, well, here it is. I'm an ambassador in chains. And it's actually singular in the original. I am an ambassador in a chain. Listen to the crinkle of the chain. This is not invisible power. This isn't spiritual. This is tangible. This is the power of military incarceration, and the apostle is experiencing this power. He is living in house arrest in Rome, awaiting his trial because he appealed to Caesar for what was an unjust charge. 
And he has a chain around his wrist. And on the other end of the chain is a Roman soldier who guards him. And according to well-respected scholar F.F. Bruce, he notes the soldier would be relieved every four hours or so. But there was no relief from his chain for Paul, only a change of soldier. According to Acts 28, verse 30, Paul stayed two whole years in house arrest. And in this chained lifestyle, his main prayer request was not release. What was it? That the gospel of Christ would be proclaimed by his words and his life. This text calls us to pray all sorts of prayers at all times, but there is an emphasis placed on, in this passage on praying that the gospel be communicated. And that's our fourth big point this morning. Pray especially that the gospel is spoken and lived out. About 250 years after Paul wrote these words in Ephesians 6, the emperor of the Roman Empire, 312 AD, he had a life-changing experience, a vision. And he converted to Christianity. Now, there's a lot that historians don't know about the conversion of Constantine. He's called Constantine the Great. But we do know that the Edict of Milan, which he issued in 313, decriminalized Christianity throughout the entire empire. And we also know that this silver coin on the screen issued by Constantine in 315 features a symbol exalting Jesus Christ. If you look your viewpoint to the left on his helmet, up high to the left in a circle, there's a symbol there above Constantine the Great, okay? On, on that crest there is something that's called an, uh, the Cairo. The Cairo is a trademark used by Constantine in which the first two Greek letters of the word for Christ are aligned artistically on top of each other, resembling a cross. The Cairo, Christ, right there on Constantine's helmet. You see, the classical pagan Roman Empire has been extinct today for over 1,600 years. Rome was sacked and it fell in 410. It was thereafter never the same. And hardly anyone reads the ancient texts of the practices and theology of Rome, but the Christian gospel, by contrast, is vibrant and strong nearly the 2,000 years it's been in existence. And the writings of Paul are read preached, featured in Christian broadcasts all over the world daily, influencing millions upon millions of lives. And so I ask you, what one? Was it the iron chain of earthly power? Or was it the spiritual armor and prayers to the living God? James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. The old King James Version, the, the, the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. So I call you, brothers and sisters, do not neglect the practice of prayer 
pray for one another, stand vigilant like a watchdog, and use the Holy Spirit's guidance and power as you do so. Would you pray with me now? God, we're so thankful what all you have provided for our welfare. Jesus himself prayed for our protection, and we know that as these two kingdoms are in conflict, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, Father, we want to be victories and to be on the side of advancing light in our culture, in our families, in our workplaces, and so forth. And I ask God that you would lead us to come to you, runny noses and all, and just be authentic about who we are and faith-filled about how you are. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.